This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. The transmission of information on this podcast is not intended to establish and receipt of such information does not establish or constitute an attorney-client relationship. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements. Welcome to After the Buzzer. I'm Bob Wallace, Chair of the Sports Law Practice at Thompson Coburn in St. Louis. We specialize in representing entities with sports interests, whether it's acquisitions, facilities, finance, real estate deals, or contract negotiations. We have lawyers with a lot of experience in these areas. I started doing these podcasts because there are a lot of great topics and people involved in sports, and I wanted to let our listeners meet them. Today, we have one of the rising stars and true college athletic leaders in Sean Frazier, the athletic director at Northern Illinois University, where he has been for eight years. Under Sean's guidance, the Northern Illinois Huskies have been historically competitive on the field, academically, and socially. Sean is a tireless fundraiser, and his success doing so has transformed Northern Illinois facilities to benefit student-athletes and fan experience. And his fundraising prowess has resulted in an average of $2.5 million in donations. On the field, the Huskies have won the Mid-American Championship in football, basketball, wrestling, gymnastics, volleyball, tennis, cross-country. Northern Illinois has also won the Mid-American Conference Fred Jacoby Trophy, presented to the top women athletic programs, and won the NCAA Minority Opportunities Athletic Association Diversity and Inclusion Award. And Sean himself was honored with the group's Distinguished Service Award. Sean is a recognized NCAA leader, an active member of the National Association of Collegiate Athletic Directors, serving on its executive committee. Sean is a Long Island native and football player at the University of Alabama from 1987 to 1991. Prior to becoming to Northern Illinois, John worked at Merrimack College, Boxing University, and Manhattanville College. John also holds a master's degree in edu- higher education from the University of Maine. Known also for his leadership in diversity, inclusion, and leadership, John recently chaired Lead One, an association of college ADs working group on diversity and inclusion, which has authored a white paper on actionable recommendations Great, more diverse senior leadership in the NCAA Division I football. It is my pleasure to welcome Sean to After the Buzzer. Sean, thank you for joining me. I appreciate that. Uh, it's always nice. Where? Let me ask you a question. First question, where are you from in Long Island? It would be uh, Huntington, township okay. of Huntington. Proud Long Island to hear. Okay. I, I'm, I went to, uh, I, I'm from Jamaica, New York. Okay. Yeah, and I went to school out in Woodmere, uh, Long Island. And my mother lives in Sag Harbor, Long Island. So tell me, what? What made you decide to get into college athletics? Well, being, a yeah, being a student athlete, you know, obviously from high school and, uh, you know, University of Alabama was a great um, uh, environment, uh, especially for football and just all things athletics. And, you know, coming out of that, graduating, um, I, I still had a fire to be involved in uh, collegiate athletics, athletics in, in general, and uh, went into the coaching ranks and, uh didn't have the the fire to to be a, a a a college coach, even though I did coach football. I did was involved with uh, youth sports, but I wanted to be in administration and I had a mentor by the name of Jim Livengood, who's a former athletic director at the University of Arizona. Uh, we got together in a NCAA program, and you know, uh, not 
not necessarily thinking I was going to become an athletic director, but wanted to be something in college athletics. And uh, he, he, he really uh, uh, befriended me and put me on a path of, uh, of saying that, hey, you know, this is a great field for you. You have a passion. Uh, you want to make changes. You want to make uh, have a student athlete environment that that is one that uh, is nurturing and uh, things fell into line. And uh, uh, I was mentored uh, by some great people, uh, Jim being one. Barry Alvarez, I was a deputy athletic director at University of Wisconsin. And then uh, Dr. Sherry Clark, who was, uh, uh, was a, a dean of multicultural student affairs at the University of Maine, who really was the one that said, hey, you know, you can throw the rope back over the, the fence and, uh, and, and be very impactful with this platform. So that's what kind of what happened. It was a long way to say that I followed my passion and uh, coaching and athletic administration uh, was a vehicle for me to, to do that. Well, now you say you didn't have the passion to be a coach. Is it was it the hours? I mean, you're. It's, I'm sure you're not working shorter hours being the AD than you would yeah. have been as a coach. Yeah, what, no, what? That, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Um, yeah, no, I think that uh, what I meant by that is that uh, in coaching, I can impact one particular sport and uh, one particular set of lives. Where in athletic administration, I touch multiple sports. Uh, across administrative lines and working with shared governance programs uh, on campus and in the community. So that's what it was. I, I was feeling a bit that, okay, this is where we're going to be. And uh, I'm tied to a particular agenda that only deals with a myopic thought around football versus what I could do possibly on the greater good across a lot of different people's lives. So that was where I was missing. I just felt like I was missing something and, and athletic administration provided that. Okay, now at Alabama, who was the head coach at Alabama when you played? I had a number of them. Um, I had uh, Ray Perkins. I had uh, Bill Curry. In my last year, I had Gene Stallings. Uh, so I had Gene, some really great coaches, yeah. Gene and I worked together when uh, I was at the St. Louis Cardinals uh, and Arizona Cardinals, and he was the head coach there. I remember. Yep, yep, great man. He's a great man. I, I tell you, I heard Gene give a speech to the team before preseason, and I wanted to go play. Uh, <laughs> he, yeah, he, he was, was really good. Yeah, he, he was, he you know, obviously he was with the Bear, he coached with the Bear, Texas A&M. Uh, he's a Texan. Uh, he's a player's coach. Uh, he, he really, during that time of transition for us, he brought in a sense of pride and determination. Won a national title in 92. I had already left and started a coaching career, but uh, he was always that person. I said, you know, I wish I would have spent more time with him. He had a special needs uh, right. a, a son, Danny, and, you know, it was just, you know, you could you could tell he was, more than just a coach to a lot of us. So, and now, what position did you play? What were you? Uh, I I was recruited as a fullback and then ended up as a defensive back, kind of hybrid linebacker uh, uh, for the Tide. So, um, yeah, it was an interesting thing. I came in as a blocking fullback for uh, uh, our Heisman Trophy candidate, uh, uh, Bobby Humphrey was his name. Okay. And, uh, uh, Hump was unbelievable, but uh, a guy named uh, Kevin Turner beat me out, who uh, uh -huh. longtime pro. He actually passed away from uh, ALS. Uh, right. but I was happy he beat me out because I wanted to be on defense anyway. Because right. I'd rather do the hitting than getting the hit and being hit back in those days. I, I, I got to know Kevin Turner a little bit. Uh, when I was with the Philadelphia Eagles, uh, we recruited him to be a free agent fullback. Ray Rhodes really wanted Kevin Turner. And uh, I remember doing the wholesale sale on him. And we got him to sign. He was a good football player. He was tough oh, as nails. Tough as nails. And I'm so glad. We came in together. We were the two to come in and I looked at him, he looked at me, and we went head at it, and I had my shot, but I did appreciate the fact that uh, he was a man's man, great person. What brings a Long Island kid down to Alabama? 
Well, I'm from, I, my, my people are from the great state of Alabama, you know, I'm, uh, from Gadsden and Birmingham, Alabama, where it all started. Uh, I got two splits. I got family in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's my father's family and my mother's family is from uh, Gadsden and Birmingham. And obviously, if you know anything about households, mama, mama's going to win. And uh, <laughs> uh, I had a chance to be recruited. And uh, it was always a dream for me to, to, to play at the highest level. Um, I really appreciated my time and actually defined uh, the experience for my student athletes in uh, Alabama, as you can see, has, has put an exclamation point on excellence, especially when it comes to uh, athletics and specifically football. So it was a great experience for me. But family, connectivity, uh, college football, that's what brought me uh, down to the great state of Alabama. Yeah. Well, you, you played at a much higher level than I did. I played football at Yale and I was a backup running back at Yale and realized that uh, if you're a backup running back in the Ivy Leagues, you're not going to go to the next level. So you got to find out what you're going to do. And that's when I decided to get in sports. Uh, tell me a little bit about your philosophy, Sean, as a leader of an athletic department. How do you, how do you manage? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a, it's a great question. And a lot of it has come from the different mem mentors that I've had, you know, and I think that for me, um, it's definitely being a hands-on, but more importantly, uh, putting people in the right position to be successful. One of the things that I found in my brief coaching career and as a student athlete is that, you know, all the different people have lots of gifts of leadership and the ability to communicate effectively and, and to do the job. Um, they just need a little, little help or a, a clear set of expectations drawn out for them. So for me, it's really more about putting great people, people who are smarter than myself, people who are driven, driven, passionate, and then getting them all to work together well in the sandbox for greatness. So that's really, if you look at the best coaches, uh, the Phil Jacksons, you know, as you see some of the people, people that are out there, they're able to do all these individuals to get together and to work together for a common goal. So that's always been a mantra of mine is to get people working together. They might not like you, like each other all the time, you know, we're, we're dealing with type A personalities, but you also are dealing with people say, hey, the end goal is this championship or academic excellence or fundraising or, or, or moving this rock uphill. So part of, part of my leadership model is about getting good people around, making sure that clear expectations are out there, making sure the goal is clear for everyone, making sure everyone has respect for one another communication-wise, make sure you have diversity of understanding and getting folks driven to get to that goal set. So I've been uh, very fortunate and humbled to be on staff and be a part of staff and lead staff that have a similar understanding. And uh, even though they're maybe working for themselves, and that's okay, as long as the greater good and the greater core mission gets complete. Now, how many, how many sports do you have uh, at NIU? I've got 17 here at uh, uh, NIU. So what is that, nine men, seven, eight women? Or? Yeah, yeah, we've got about, uh, what is it on the men? We've got seven and 10. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yes, yeah, so, uh, men versus uh, more women than, than obviously okay. men. You know, football, when you have a football program, you know, you, you're dealing with a number of different uh, issues around Title IX, as well as balancing resources. So we've got less men's programs than we have women. But from a participation standpoint, they even out based on size of uh, offering, size of sport numbers that we have. Right. Now, you mentioned that your philosophy was to get good people and give them the tools to do their job and to work, you know, get them to work together. One of the more challenging things, I'm sure, is dealing with your head coaches and <laughs> the demands of their head coaches. How do you how, how do you manage the the successful coach? Yeah, so that, that's a great question in the sense that over time, I've been an athletic director at Division One, Two, and Three. Didn't start out that way. 
right? It was, okay, let's, the opportunity meets design and it just kind of worked its way through. And I also been at hybrid institutions where they've been division one programs and division three programs within the athletic department. So, um, you know, I've been at Clarkson University, uh, division one hockey, uh, men's women's hockey, and then division three, everything else. I've been at Miramac, division one hockey and division two and everything else. So it's interesting to take a look at those type A's and those head coaches. And I think that, you know, managing a head coaches is very similar in, in life on dealing with uh, uh, the type A individual that's trying to uh, achieve everything they can, everything they can get. And I think it's important that you do have a certain level and reference of uh, understanding about what they're doing. One of the toughest jobs you can ever have is to have a revenue producing sport or a head coaching sport and the stress that goes along with that. There's so much stress that goes along with the microscope on that. So putting yourself in those shoes and making sure that you can relate, communicate and understand the expectations and also the stressors that go along with the job. So I like to be able to have those conversations with the head coaches and, and, and talk about what can I do to put you in a situation to be successful? And then we go through a litany of that. And, and there's a number of things that I take, uh, 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 that I use to make, be able to motivate and also too, to make sure that there's a connectivity about why it's important for me to be in your corner every step of the way and to understand what you want to get out of the end of the, uh, the goals and objectives that you set for yourself and to make sure that those goals and objectives are in alignment with the departmental's goals and objectives, which are also in line with the institutional's goals and objectives. So part of that is good, active communication, effective communication and clear, defined goals that meets everyone's needs. And yes, it is quite challenging sometimes to get everybody into, into an alignment. But I find that communication, uh, clarity of expectations, and again, that connectivity to the fact that I'm here for you and to make sure that I can give you everything you can to be successful in some of the things that you want to get done. So what, without naming anyone, what was the most interesting thing that a coach said to you that you could do to help him be successful? And what was the thing that you walked out of his office and said, or her office, I can't do that? <laughs> Well, yeah, there's been a lot, as you can probably imagine, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, I don't want to give away so much here, but I'll just right. say that, yeah, sometimes those coaches' expectations are not in alignment with both the institution as well as the department's uh, goals. They are more self-serving to the individual sport or individual coach. I think the most, uh, the one that was the most uh, craziest uh, that I heard was that, you know, um, we should be treated uh, uh, this way or I should be treated this way. And I need certain extracurricular things um, that are not related to the program to make sure that my stress level uh, is lowered so I can be the most successful to be able to lead this department. And that would be, you know, maybe activities of uh, vacation uh, related uh, and also to increase dollars uh, to support my, my, my family. Uh, uh, so they can also uh, be less stressed, so they cannot put stress on me to be able to do my job. So yeah, I would say that the extracurricular and extra dollars to support their personal needs that are not related to the job at hand uh, were uh, were asked. Uh, I also had uh, uh, individuals that uh, would say that you know we have to increase uh, certain dollars in my sport, and my sister sport doesn't need this because uh, no one goes to games and supports. Uh, 
that program. So why would you give those types of resources that I should get and they shouldn't get? You know, so in the day and age of Title IX and compliance and equity, you know, I can't believe that that was even a question that came up. But the myop, being myopic about their situation and what they wanted, they needed to get that out to me. So both times walking out of the office saying, we got work to do to help our coach realize that they're part of a team and not just on the island by themselves. Just a little, to riff off of that a little bit, is there something that someone has said to you that has resonated that you say, you know what, I'm going to incorporate that in the way I go forward in dealing with these programs? Yeah, no, uh, you know, dealing with, uh, I think the, the, the communication and the clear expectations. I've had a coach when I was a young AD, you know, I've been an AD at, uh, since age 30, I am 52 now. So if you can take a look at that, you know, as an AD, you know, I was learning on the job uh, as a young AD and uh, there were some coaches that said, you know what, I need an extra piece of equipment I need to be able to put into uh, uh, this recruiting. Uh, uh, my recruiting process uh, needs to be much more diverse in the way that I go about a recruiting grounds uh, 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 that I'm doing. So a couple of it was the, you know, the fact that I need to be a, a little bit more intentional about resources around recruitment. And I think as a younger AD, um, okay, you know, um, what do you need? Well, I need this, this, and, and they were very specific to the situation at that institution. So I walked out of that meeting saying, man, that doesn't just happen, happen at, uh, ex, uh, at this board here. This needs to happen across the board. We should be putting emphasis in recruiting on this level for all of our sports. And why aren't we not doing that? And why is this only one coach telling me this? Well, this one coach had experience of 20 something years and has been very successful and turned his particular program over uh, and was in the national limelight where I had my other sport that was a maybe a similar sport, didn't do any of it, but wasn't recruiting, wasn't doing those types of things. So I think the emphasis on the intentionality around recruitment and getting the best athletes and not compromising academic standards to do that was probably the most impactful thing that uh, as, a, as a younger AD that I've carried with me to where I am right now. I'm going to come back to both being a younger AD and I, you're, you're no longer that, but okay. <laughs> but And also being an African-American AD and dealing with that. But so you, you started talking about you, you've worked at various three levels, uh, one, two, and three. Uh, are they the same? I, I mean, obviously, Alabama has a lot more money than NIU. I mean, their football budget probably is your whole athletic department budget times two, maybe. What are the differences that you see and you're dealing with the same problems, but you got less resources to deal with. Yeah, I think that you have to be more intentional about the resources at this level. You know, I think that uh, you've got, you know, no offense to Alabama or any other places that, that are, it would be classified a power five type of level. Uh, I think you have to be a lot more deliberate and intentional. And I also think you have to work a little harder. Uh, and I say that because they've been, been at uh, uh, those other levels. Um, sometimes people take um, uh, uh, resources for granted. I think that we're being exposed right now uh, uh, with COVID and uh, also the financials in, in America right now in higher ed uh, about using resources uh, and not being more intentional to make sure we get a return on that investment. So I think at our level, we've had to be very intentional about what we are using these resources for. So it's not just, okay, we need more money. Okay, what do you need more money for? Give us the examples. How are we going to move the agenda? What is the ROI uh, uh, back from these resources? And I think the group of five levels specifically in my situation and, and, and looking at the dollars, and we've been one of the cost most 
most cost-effective football programs in the country. And we've won more than uh, than a lot of folks at Group of Five. Matter of fact, we have the best win percentage in our league and in the state of Illinois. So th- those are some big chops right there. And I'm proud of that, uh, especially in the last decade. And I think the reason why we've gotten out of that is that we pay our coaches uh, a, a very good wage. We make sure we position them to be successful. And I think we're much more intentional with the dollars that we spend from recruiting uh, facilities, uh, 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 overall amenities for our student-athletes, our coaches, and, and we count every dollar. And in some cases, at our level, every penny to make sure we balance the books on that. So I think it's more of an intentionality. On the Power 5 side, not to say that people are wasting resources, but you read what I read relative to some of the amenities and things that are going on at that level. I think that's it's, it's a tough way to justify a certain amenity or a piece of equipment if it's not returning on that investment. Now, maybe it is with some of those athletes that want to see some of those bells and whistles that are going on with facilities. Um, There's needs and wants. We deal with the needs. The wants, that's a whole nother category. And we only fulfill that once we know that we can generate the revenues to actually substantiate that and support that. Yeah. So you, you talk about wants, needs, uh, you know, the recruitment of the athlete. Uh, the athlete is a, is a, is different than when you were recruited. Uh, talk about some of the differences and where do you think college athletics is going to be in terms of, uh, you know, compensating athletes, the name, image, and like this, uh, and those issues that you're now confronted with. Yeah, it's tough. You know, right now, you know, dealing with what we're seeing with name, image, and likeness, seeing with the Austin case, seeing exactly what's happening with cost of attendance, you know, we're, we're, li- we're living in, in a watershed moment for college athletics and for higher education. You know, you know we're, we're taking a look at the business model for higher education, and it's definitely uh, breaking up. Uh, the ability to pay student-athletes, the changes around cost of attendance and the ability to pay athletes, and then the name, image, and likeness, being able to compensate folks for that. that, that cat- those categories and those things that we're talking about now are going against the collegiate model, Okay. You know, when I played, obviously, get a scholarship. There was no cost of attendance. Uh, you know, yes, there were some gaps of, of need that I still needed to have to be able to do things outside of the, the scholarship. But at the end of the day, um, I still had the educational component, the ability to be able to uh, garner education to better myself for citizenship in today's society. Nowadays, there's a lot of inst- uh, institutions and a lot of student athletes that want more. Now, we're still talking about the 1% right? 1% of these particular athletes are going to be able to, to do some of those creative things uh, around uh, making money off their image, their name, their likeness. And we get that. And maybe that's what should happen. You know, I'm not against that. But I still think that I'm concerned about the majority, the, the 99, the 98%, the 90% of the student athletes who are coming here for a college education, for an experience, for a competition. What does that look like for them? Okay, not to isolate the 1%, maybe the Zion Williamsons or the Volks individuals uh, that can make money off their their piece. I think that they should be allowed to do that. I don't have any problems with that as a former student athlete and as a coach. I just worry about blowing up the whole collegiate uh, uh, model for that less than 1% or that that 10% or whatever you want, whatever category it comes to. So I think now we need to be really, really strategic in understanding about destroying the collegiate model and making significant adjustments on that. 
This should be legislation specifically for that. We have a congressional intervention, federal, and all that that's taking a look at that and all these bills that are being introduced across the country. I get that. But let's be careful not to destroy the essence and opportunities. And as you know, as I'm, now I'm speaking as the person of color, uh, as a person of color who's given an opportunity to be able to complete this education, if all of a sudden that changes and I don't have access to education because all of a sudden it becomes too pro cost prohibitive for higher, education, for higher education institutions to support that, what does that do for that percentage of individuals that were getting a chance for higher education and it's no longer because it goes away because of the ability to be able to uh, now pay for this particular enterprise. That would be devastating for uh, large numbers of individuals who just wanted to get an education versus trying to make money off of, uh, 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 of their name, image, or likeness or some aspect to that. So I think we have to be very cautious about that. And I, I, would, I would want and hope that people uh, past my pay grade would have sense and understanding about the impact of certain decisions that could de uh, destroy 80 to 90% of the population that it wasn't intended uh, to affect. You think that the discussions that are being had are being strategic. While you were talking, I'm thinking uh, that, you know, the problem that you're dealing with at Northern as opposed to what Devante Smith is dealing with Alabama are so different in terms of name, image, and likeness opportunities. But then as I began to think about it, I was saying a small town where you're located, uh, a student athlete who's the star quarterback, he could have some opportunities off the field for name, image, and likeness. Now, I'm not sure that the women's soccer player is going to have that same opportunities, but, you know, you're dealing, are we being strategic? Are we looking at it? One of my criticisms of, of where we are in college athletics is I think we are trying to put a Band-Aid over a problem that has evolved over so many years. Uh, and the game is just much different than even when you played. Uh, and when we started the NCAA, and we just need to look at it from a more, what can we do to provide, and, and I think probably Northern Illinois is a better example of providing a student athlete educational opportunities than somebody at USC or one of the bigger schools where Football takes over, uh, you know, such an important role in basketball. Uh, I kind of got on my NCAA soapbox a little bit when at a Final Four, one of my friends' teams were were in it, and they left on Tuesday to play a Saturday play a Saturday night game. And I'm thinking, well, where's the educational component? He says, well, we bring tutors. I said, you know, I learned more being in conversations with my professors and my other students than I ever did just reading the book. I don't remember any of that stuff that I did 50 years ago, but I do remember the interactions that I had and, and, and the growth that I had as a young man uh, coming up. So uh, very interesting. Let me uh, talk about what happened with during the pandemic a little bit uh, and how that affected what was going on in your world. Did you did you play football this this uh, fall? Yeah, we did, we did. But let me, let me just backtrack because you're probably gonna want this piece from me. I think ultimately, what we've done in higher education, specifically in the larger athletic departments, is that we've allowed the proliferation of, you know, salaries, travel, other types of things. We've let the the, the horse uh, out of the barn, so to speak, with the spending that now we're catching up. To go to your point, that the question you just asked me about COVID, we've been exposed as a industry or higher education because uh, we've let the proliferation grow of salaries, compensation, 
quite frankly, college athletic spending get to a point where people are asking a question, okay, are we still collegiate? Are we still, uh, you know, not non-professional? Are we still providing certain things? So those questions are, are constant by the external people who are not a part of the industry itself. And they still call the question about why wouldn't you pay your athletes? Why wouldn't you do it? Now, I can give you a list of things that I provide to my athletes that would be considered a la carte expenditures. I can give it to a very healthy. It's a pretty healthy number between medical support to athletic training to supplies. I can give it to you and cha-ching, cha-ching, and we can go through it. So I think people are getting that information, but because of the proliferation, some of these big numbers and these one or 2% type of numbers that are out there, it really snows over uh, what all the good that is currently going on with college athletics. But to your point of uh, COVID, yeah, it was, you played football. It was one of the most challenging things that I've ever been a part of. I equate it to uh, flying a, a plane and trying to build the plane while it is in the air flying. That's <laughs> how hard uh, this was as, re as it relates to uh, um, trying to manage COVID, compete in football, and just trying to get through it and protect people's lives. It, it is a, it's continues to be challenging as I'm in basketball season and I'm doing a, a double season right now with fall sports in the spring, spring sports in the spring, winter sports in the spring. Yeah, it's a bit crazy. Yeah, it's a, and, and you mentioned that there's some legislation, uh, Congress looking at NIL and looking at paying athletes. Uh, probably the worst thing that could happen is a bunch of politicians trying to solve a problem. But if you look at it from the other end, uh, the MTA just postponed, you know, talking about NIL. So, you know, it's people are saying, well, they don't really want to do anything. So they're delaying it. And people and the congressmen who are looking for headlines are saying, no, we're going to we're going to push that. So it's very interesting, very interesting time for college, college athletics. And, uh, do you have any thoughts about what will happen in the next? Will we get to a point? I always tell people I'm not smart enough to, to decide how to pay athletes. But ADs and the coaches, I mean, you know, Mike Krzyzewski is making nine million dollars a year. Zion Williams didn't make that. <laughs> yeah, so my, my thoughts on, yes, change is, is going to happen. Change is already here. I think there's a number of bills that are out there in the Senate and Congress um, that are proposing some level of compensation for student athletes. I think uh, NIL was um, postponed mainly because the Department of Justice has made some, you know, uh, uh, emphasis that, uh, you know, that whatever legislation is put forth by the NCAA needs to pass um, uh, the mustard, so to speak. It needs to be able to support the initiatives around the student athlete experience. If it's not done right, it will be challenging the courts and the laws, and there'll be a number of lawsuits. And as, as you know, the NCAA is not uh, uh, in any way in a condition where, where they're not going to be sued. They, 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 they get sued regularly and often. Uh, and the NCAA is us, member institutions that, quite frankly, uh, underneath their governance. So I think that for, for us, I think that there is going to be some, obviously we just had the inauguration uh, by the time of this taping, uh, just you know, just yesterday. And I know that uh, once Congress and Senate get back to some type of working scenario with our new president in place, there will be ongoing conversations about the different pay for play models that are out there. Hopefully that people take uh, heed to the practitioners like myself and others uh, and to talk about how we're not going to blow up the collegiate model 
uh, to get, again, this one or two or 10% of the population uh, uh, to be able to make uh, money on their name, image, and likeness. That's a big issue. Now, um, I think that there's a number of folks that want us to solve our own problems and uh, want us to do it and, and want us to stop waiting to do it. Um, I would just like to say that, uh, yes, we can make it happen, but it's still the, 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 the small number uh, of individuals that can do this, and we need to make sure we carve something out for them and not disrupt the sanctity of the collegiate mo uh, model that is serving the majority of our student athletes that are competing on our campuses. So let me, you mentioned a small percentage of it. And when I asked you to come on the show, uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about is the small percentage of uh, minorities, African-Americans uh, in positions like you're at. Uh, and LEAD One, which is a group that you're part of and 130 athletic directors, Division One, recently put out a white paper about uh, diversity. I'm following closely the NFL's hiring uh, this season, which is not going any better than it really did last year. I guess maybe Robert Sala uh, puts us one above where we were last year. What is the problem that we have? Uh, I mean, we've got all these athletes coming out, African-American athletes coming out in, in, from playing, and but we don't have any coaches. We don't have any athletic directors. I mean, we have, we have some, but not enough. What can be done? Yeah, it's a passionate question and one that I've dealt with in my over 30 year career. And uh, yeah, I'm one of 13 or one of 14 African-Americans at the uh, FBS level out of 130, just like you mentioned. I'm fully, I'm, I'm very much aware of that, of that fact. Um, yeah, I'm also aware that more than 60 to 65% uh, are participate just in the sport of football who are black and brown boys. Uh, and that's a glaring number. <laughs> Uh, with uh, knowing that participation is so high, and we've got less than, you know, 12, 13 African Americans who are head football coaches at uh, at the at the FBF uh, level. So these are numbers that are known. I think people know Richard Lapcheck has put out a report card every year outlining the uh, you know the the fairness doctrine around representation of minorities and uh, senior level administrators. But to answer the question directly, I don't have the uh, the answer. I'm going to be truthful to you. I'm going to say that I've been very fortunate and humbled. Um, I'm going to say that uh, I've been tapped by a larger force to make sure that uh, this is life's work. And uh, I want to be a tool of education. And I do recognize that I've been very, one of the fortunate people to rise into a role where I'm at an FBS school and uh, I am a, in a minority uh, uh, in a situation. I think that the white paper that was produced is probably the most, most comprehensive actionable tools that's ever been assembled in my lifetime. And I'm so humbled to have been a part of the leadership along with Tom McMillan and his leadership and his bravery, China, China, Dr. China Jude, who was my co-chair at the University of Wyoming, and then the collection of researchers, scientists, practitioners that came together over a six to seven month review of best practices, not just at the college level, but at the uh, at the professional level, you know, at the private sector, at the higher ed level, to put together these particular uh, uh, initiatives, and some of them are bold, you know, like the ones for you know taking a look at search firms and grading them and assessing them, uh, and then some of them were you know training, understanding, cultural, uh, political. Some of them were old hat, right? 
but at the end of the day, it was a well-sourced research document that dug into the bowels of every aspect of hiring and education around diversity, equity, and inclusion that I've ever seen. And I've poured my life into it, mainly because if I get hit by a fruit truck tomorrow, I want someone to say and pick up the document and say, oh, why aren't we doing this? Uh, or how can we implement these? And uh, it, was a, it was a great experience for me to kind of get that off my chest. But I think the, the short answer to your question is that institutions, college, uh, uh, chancellors and presidents have to make it a priority. Board of trustees and regents have to make it a, a priority. I always say that institutions, college presidents and chancellors are higher ADs and head, head football coaches. If we want to hide behind the fact of search firms are, are doing that, okay. I work with a lot of search firms. They're, they're not the problem. Um, they are part of the overall system that has uh, that is a part of the process uh, of why we haven't had numbers increase. But at the end of the day, people need to make an intentionality and go through the process and find the right fit. And a lot of that fit is there. It used to be, well, where are they? Do we need to develop uh, ethnic racial minorities and women for these roles? Now they're all over the place. You know, now... Uh, there are people sitting in positions looking for roles, looking for opportunities, and they're being bypassed for whatever reasons they are, but they are being bypassed. So now it's all about taking actionable, taking, taking accountability, and pulling the, tr the proverbial trigger to go and make the hire. And I think that that's where we're probably stunted, and that's why the actionable tools were a way for college presidents, chancellors, board of trustees, regents, and, and, and those in the decision-making uh, uh, way to say, okay, here's some things we can do. And by the way, there's a, there's a large network of individuals who are qualified now. We just need to do it. And the only way I could tell, you know, I, I had this conversation with my wife, my beautiful wife, Rosa Frazier, who was also an attorney by trade. Um, she would often talk to me, say, your industry is uh, quite interesting. Uh, I think that the part of it, it comes down to maybe some type of uh, 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 legality, some legal issues, and maybe someone's gonna um, uh, pull a lawsuit. And she thinks that from a legal standpoint, I think of it as a, okay, we need to make sure we give the institutions a, a way to diversify themselves, give them tools themselves to then they can operationalize it within their campus. So it's not a forced issue. No one wants to have a lawsuit or potential liability associated. They want ways to solve their own issues. So this attempt with this white paper has given them that. Now it's all about implementation on those various campuses. Yeah, I mean, you talk about intentionality and having them so, but this is not a new problem that we've been dealing with. Right. And, getting, and, you know, I've always pushed back on uh, what you what you identified as not a problem, which is we've got there are a lot of qualified African-Americans that are in the pipeline already. Don't tell me that. And, you know, I always got the hair on my neck stand when I said we have to have a program to teach them how to be ADs. No, you don't have to have any special program. No, no more than you have to have for 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 a young white guy who, who, who's been in the profession. You just got to give them a, an opportunity. One of the things that I, I think is interesting, maybe in the white paper addressed it a little bit, you, you touched on two points that I find very interesting. One was the search firm. And two was, uh, you didn't call it this, but I'm going to call it this implicit bias, which is that people are just want to hire people that, uh, you know, me and you can, we're both African-American men. I'm a, quite a bit older than you, but 
we can have a conversation and we're not judging each other by well, he looks different than me or 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 that and and that's kind of the problem that we that we see how do we how do we eliminate that that bias that that is there well i think the, I, I, we had mentioned implicit bias we talked about uh microaggressions we talked about uh you know some of our painful pasts here in america you know I, we cannot talk about this subject and not talk about the dividedness that we have in our country. We just hired, we just hired, we did. We just elected a president of the United States and the basis of the, the two major issues that that, that, were, that basically came down to was dealing with COVID <laughs> or the lack thereof. And then obviously race relations in America right now. We're, we're talking about a racial reckoning we're dealing with between George, uh, uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, you know, right, race has been a part of our culture, especially in America, since the dawn of time, right? And I yes. think that it's trickled down to a lot of industries, but more so uh, it has in, in athletics. You know, Colin Kaepernick, you know, we're talking about, you know, the things that, you know, the, the social consciousness or social justice. So I think that what we're dealing with right now, and which is so obvious and gets continuously played out, is when, you know, you have processes, you have uh, hiring opportunities, and the the bottom line is that you know the news at eleven is that so and so has been hired and no one knows about a process, no one knows how it, it happened that way. But we see the same faces and names over and over again. And I had this conversation with the with the media as well. You know, we'll have a media outlet and uh, there'll be a job open, and then uh, the media outlet uh, spits out all names, and none of those names are, are people of color or women in, in, in that process. So it starts the visibility, the implicit bias, the microaggressions, that these people are the best uh, because we didn't put a, a, uh, a spotlight maybe on folks, folks we, we don't know about or folks that uh, are not as visual or visible to the majority. So part of it comes down to be intentional about going out to get to know the people that are out there. Henceforth, we see, you know, the emergence of the Black Alliance. I think Alan Green and Brandon, Alan Green, who's the athletic director at Auburn, and Brandon Martin, who's at UMKC, athletic director, they got together and they formed the uh, the alliance, the Black Alliance, right? Obviously, my work with the lead one in the, you know, with the white paper and actionable steps, we've got uh, the Minority Opportunities Athletic Association, you know, president being uh, uh, China Jude. Uh, so we've got lots of organizations that have been out here. I talked about Richard Lapchek and his. So there's lots of people out there trying to do this work. The issue comes down to when the people are ready to actually take actionable and intentionality around their hiring practices, as well as educating their, op uh, their, their organizations. So yeah, it's an uphill battle. And I will tell you that um, it's probably cost me some friends and uh, it's probably added some new friends, you know, uh, based on what I do. And, uh, uh, but I think for me, it's more about making sure that I have the opportunity to help everyone, not just the minority or the majority, but everyone in our industry, because we become better. It's been proven. If we have a more diverse operation, black, white, gender, whatever, whatever the protected class is, we are better. That's what we founded on as Americans. And I think ultimately what we do right now is put ourselves in a potential liability when we just get one of anything. One of anything is not going to help. Being being not intentional around diversity, equity, and inclusion definitely puts us in a box and it doesn't get us to where we need to be when it comes to critical issues when they come up. Henceforth, the racial reckoning, the, the voice of the student athlete. We're seeing things that quite frankly 
are a little scary. And a lot of my colleagues who are not people of color have uh, given me a call and say, how do I deal with this? And they're, they're ill-prepared to be able to deal with now the voice of our young people asking, saying it's not okay anymore not to be diverse and accepting about everyone's difference. So I think that's the level playing field that we're starting to see right now because of the racial reckoning that's happening because of the most recent issue around George Floyd. Right. And Marion, you, you, you transitioned us into the next topic that I just wanted to touch on. And I know we're coming too close to the time that I asked you to give to this, but the student athlete and the young people, uh, they're becoming a lot more uh, socially conscious, a lot more woke or whatever term you want to use. What differences have you seen? I'm not sure that, you know, back in the day, Jim Brown and those guys weren't woke and Kareem and, and Lou Alcinda back then didn't have a social conscience, but the athlete now has the, the mechanism, the communication uh, infrastructure to get their point out. How do, how do you see that? What role do you see the student athlete playing as we go forward? Well, I think it's major. I think that's the reason why we're talking about name, image, and likeness right now. I, I think that's, you know, we saw the social justice. We saw, uh, you know, the month of June, um, I think a, a, a news outlet foiled uh, uh, my uh, uh, my personal calendar, but not just mine, but others as well. And one of the things that he called me up just to alert me and said, you know, I forwarded your, your calendar, uh, Sean. Uh, and uh, I also did that with uh, uh, several other uh, athletic directors intentionally. And it was interesting to look at the month of June. Uh, because the month of June, uh, before the month of June, there was uh, there was no mention of uh, social justice, uh, racial programs, uh, diversity education, equity, and all that. The month of June hit, everybody had a, a, a tagline about uh, diversity training or social social action or social justice. And, I, and that, that really shows you about the, you know, being proactive versus, you know, being reactive to situations. So I think that the difference now is that there's a young group of, of young uh, uh, professionals as well as our students that are saying this is not acceptable and we don't want this to be a reactive. We want this to be the culture of who we are. And by the way, we are the majority now. And I'm not just talking about people of, uh, of color. We're talking about our students, white, black, them who it is. They're all, matter of fact, some of my most vocal uh, uh, students are not people of color. They are the majority who do not want this level of uh, racism or social uh, uh, issues uh, not being addressed. So I don't think we can sit back and wait for another crisis situation because it could be devastating. And we've seen people uh, at the chancellor president as well as the AD lose their positions because th things were not taken care of. Culture was not paying attention to. And that's why you see in the white paper all these educational uh, components as a part of this. So I think that uh, this is here to stay. And I think that if we have not demonstrated leadership in this area, uh, that's a that's a potential liability for an institution, for a leader that's in higher education right now of not um, embracing a certain level of conversation around education on this issue to make sure it's proactive. Because um, I, if you don't have a skill set of understanding, if you're confused about what's happening, you better educate yourself because that's going to be a tough way for you to keep your leadership role by not appealing to everyone, not just the students of color, but all students because they do not want this level of conversation any longer. They are, like you said, woke. They are educated. Um, we are in a state of, of, of dividedness in our country, and a lot of our young people do not like it. 
and they're frustrated and they're calling us old heads and they're calling us elaborating. They, they, they want us moved out the way and they want to express themselves and they will express themselves. So I think that's also a case for diversity in education and getting the best people and getting other people involved. Because uh, if you think you're just going to sit back and do what you want to do when you want to do it, our young people are going to uh, get their voice out there and they can either do it the way you want to do it or they're going to do it the way they want to do it in a very public manner. Right. Well, you know, you're just saying that you're not only getting this pressure from uh, minority students, but from others is, is a, that gives me hope that it is becoming a more widespread movement. And I listened to that young woman, Gorman, uh, give that poem yesterday. And I never felt so good about young people as I did after listening to her uh, poise and the articulation that she did was just spectacular. So in a year, if I said, Sean, will you come back and do a, a podcast in a year, do, do this, give me an update. Where do you think we'll be? in a year from now on this diversity and inclusion? Will we look back and say, you know, instead of eight ADs, there are 15. Uh, instead of you know, four head coaches, there are, you know, 12. Will we make progress? That's a good question. Um, you know, I'm conflicted. I'm conflicted. Um, we've already had a number, and again, this is before the paper uh, uh, was drafted, what was released, right? We had, at that time, and we're about to hire, I believe, uh, University of Tennessee is about to hire a, a football coach here. I think that's the 12th or 13th head uh, uh, FBS coach. But we already have 11 that already been hired since December. Uh, none have been uh, um, a person of color, uh, head football FBS. Um, I think we've already had now three or four FBS ADs um, um, uh, um, that have been hired at um, since uh, January, just January, and none of those have been uh, uh, folks of color or women. So I, I, I'm an eternal optimist. I, 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 you know, that's why I do this. Um, but I, I, I will say that I do think um, there's going to be people. I believe in my chancellors and presidents out there and board of trustees. Um, I do think there's going to be a shift, uh, mainly because of the fact I think the visibility is is always there, and I also think that. Uh, that the climate is still one that um, there's a risk of doing things um, that are not process oriented. Um, so I'm, I'm going to tell you that we're going to see at least uh, uh, some level of, of increase on the AD front, on the football front, some bump, uh, maybe a little bit more uh, there uh, with the possibility of change. But I, I don't know if we're going to see an overarching bump, uh, mainly because of the fact of of, of where we are. But I will say that we will see an uptick in, in student voice. And if we're not prepared, um, I think that we could have uh, some, some issues uh, uh, with that. Because I don't see that going away because of the climate that we have in America right now. Yeah, I, I'm just wondering at, at what point do the student athletes, uh, or not even student athletes, athletes, African-American athletes say, we, need, we want change. And if we don't get change, we're going to take some action. Uh, I think I, I think your optimism for the next year is probably okay, but the next five years, I'm not sure we don't see enough change that these these young people are going to tolerate this anymore. Yeah, I I, I would have to agree with you. I think that the, I, the number of student athletes that I have spoken with, 
not just on our campus and but on a whole, they're frustrated with the leadership. I think we're going to see a lot more turnover in chancellors and presidents. I think we're already seeing that where people are looking at higher ed and saying, you know what, I think I've done my time. You know, the average length three to five years already. I think people are stepping down at, at a significant right, uh, rate. Um, I do think we're going to see some turnover in ADs as well. Uh, so I think that there's going to be opportunities because of that. I'm just hoping that that the, the that the young uh, our young adults are patient because that I have not seen the patience. I've seen I want action now, and that has led to a, a number of individuals stepping down and others in not the right way. You know what I'm saying in the way that they were forced versus being, retiring or move on. So so yeah, I, I think my my optimism might be a little bit more so because uh, I believe in our 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 industry, and I'm hoping that there's going to be people who are going to step up and uh, do the right thing and, and make sure we support diversity, equity, and inclusion. Well, Sean, I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I, I don't want to uh, jinx NIU, but uh, I, I can't imagine that when there's this shift in athletic directors that Sean Frazier's name is not going to be at the top of uh, all, the, all the power five, if, if they want to be intentional about making a difference. And then hopefully you go to one of those big power five schools and somebody comes in in your place yeah. and gets the experience and then can move to the, to the you know $120 million budget. And we see some changes happening that way. Uh, yeah. I would tell you that NIU, it took a, I wouldn't say a risk because, you know, they, they knew me, but the president that hired me, that my current president, she's outstanding. I have no qualms at NIU has reaped the benefits of everything that uh, that I've been able to do for them and vice versa, because what they've been able to do for me, I'm humbled to be in this role. And uh, I feel really certain uh, if if a God, you know, forbid, uh, uh, if I leave this institution, um, that the leadership here gets it. They have done it. They lead by example. And, uh, you know, it's been a great ride. And uh, I'm not ready to hang it up by any means, but I will tell you that, that, uh, that, 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 that NIU has done some great things here and it's got a great leadership of president and board of trustees that uh, has stepped up. And uh, I'm fortunate to be here in, in my role. Uh, and it's been challenging, but uh, it's been a great laboratory to help young people and quite frankly, administrators grow uh, into doing everything that they can. So I appreciate that sentiment. Um, I got lots of work to do at NIU that keeps me busy night and day. And uh, I hope that uh, we can just continue to do what we do here without compromising standards, because that's that's the other piece that needs to be recognized too. Well, you say that you've, you've been, that NIU, you're lucky to be an NIU. Uh, I think NIU is lucky to have you and the leadership that you provided, the success that you brought or continued at NIU. And, and I want to thank you very much for uh, taking the time to discuss this. Uh, as I say, I'm coming back in a year to see where we are. Okay. Uh, see how you see, see whether we have made that progress. So uh, th thank you very much, Sean, for taking the time to do this. Uh, let me just say goodbye to our listeners. And I just hope you enjoyed listening to Sean and that you enjoyed uh, some of our other podcasts. And if you have, and if you do, please let us know. You can provide your feedback by going to the Apple Podcasts going to the ratings and review sections on our pod, for our podcast. If you're listening on Stitcher, go to stitcher.com. And if there is a topic you would like to hear us discuss, let us know that too. We thank you for listening.